record-breaking, history-making. No, not a Phil Taylor intro. Just another weekend for Jonathan Ray in World Superbikes. Welcome to episode 60 of Bike Life. Let's go! Well played. Well played. <laughs> yes, this is episode 60 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101. As we look back on, as introduced, and history-making and record-breaking weekend uh, in World Superbikes. And actually, not just for Jonathan Ray, although he did make the headlines with another double as he moved level with Carl Fogarty uh, at the top of the all-time World Superbike victory charts. He has now um, equaled Carl Fogarty. Nobody has won more World Superbike races in the history of this sport than Jonathan Ray after his brilliant double. Adam Miller will talk all about how he did it um, as Kawasaki and Ray took serious control uh, of the 2018 World Superbike Championship as we approach the halfway stage uh, in the season. But we'll also talk about all the action from the lower classes and most of the action, to be honest, came in those races. As Kinnan Sofoglu bowed out of World Super Sport, despite not actually racing at all, uh, we'll talk all about that because that has divided opinion um, as the greatest rider in Super Sport history bid farewell in his own unique fashion. And a lot of the history also came in Super Sport 300 as Anna Carrasco took her second career win and with it made yet more history as she became the first ever female pole sitter and female championship leader in a world championship motorcycle series. Um, we'll also look ahead to this weekend as MotoGP hits Le Mans for the French Grand Prix and news has been made in that paddock before a wheel has even been turned with three of the key players in the MotoGP paddock signing on for two more years with their various manufacturers. Uh, joining me to talk about all this once again is Andre Harrison. Dre, welcome. Do you have a story to tell, sir? We do. We do have a story to tell. We'll tell that in a second. Uh, but, but first, uh, let's tell you about the places you can find us um, here at Motorsport 101. Facebook's the first place, facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Twitter, uh, at Motorsport underscore 101, if you want to follow us on there. Um, on YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Day of Classics 3 is just over a week away, um, so make Indeed. sure you are subscribed to that um, for the, uh, the upcoming festivities as the Monaco Grand Prix and the Indy 500 approaches rapidly. Um, if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, you can back us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. $5 backing earns you uh, early access to both of our weekly podcasts. $10 access earns you access um, to our Discord server, which means you can listen to these shows live as they're recorded. And speaking of places where you can find us, uh, you, you, you can, in fact, um, not that we would encourage this, and after what happened this week, Dre definitely won't encourage this. If you actually want to find us, <laughs> There's no better way to find us than simply just finding us at the place we work. Ain't that right, Dre? <laughs> yeah. This, like, I was in shock. Like, on Monday night, like, now, Lewis is a mad wrestling fan, and, and and as you may know, Monday Night Raw was recording live at the O2 Arena um, mm. in, in, in London this past Monday. Um, so I knew this. He, he, uh, he did ask, um, well, Dre, have you got Monday off work so, you know, we can, you know, possibly meet up before going to the O2? um on the day and i was like unfortunately no i was i was stuck opening on a monday morning till about i think it was four in the afternoon in the end so about 3 30 i see a, a ghostly figure in the background head towards my shop across the green and i'm like is that who i think it is and then in comes in through the fucking door pops lewis <laughs> Like what? I said. I, said, I literally said, well, "What the fuck is he doing here?" <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> yes, Lewis comes through my door, and the first thing he says is, "Oh, don't worry, I'm not here to gamble." And I'm like, "Oh, too fucking right." Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I was in shock. It was an absolute <laughs> ambush was what it was. Uh, and uh, yeah, we spoke last week, as, as Dre mentioned, uh, as we recorded the show last week. And uh, yeah, Dre said that he was working. So I said, ah, well, I might just doorstep you at work. Um, I joked. That's what he was joking. At least Dre thought I was joking. Um, but yeah. Uh, suddenly did his research uh, and he found he found Ray and his bookies. Um, what a good I, sh- I should be deeply too. concerned. Like yeah. I, I should be filing a restraining order right about now. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I was about to say it's a small world, but not that small. I did have to look it up. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a good afternoon out by all, and, and then a good evening in the end um, as I went to uh, join seventeen thousand people in booing Roman Reigns. Um, hey, happy O two. Um, but yeah, good afternoon and good evening had by all. And uh, we basically did what we do on this podcast, and that's shoot the shit about bikes for an hour or so. Um, Pretty much. So, um, so, uh, so let's do that now um, and talk World Superbikes and uh, the action last weekend. And we are going to come to the Superbike class kind of last, really, because not a lot happened in either of the races um, at Imola. So we're going to start with Super Sport and the final race weekend um, for the greatest rider in the history of the series, Keenan Sofoglu, who... Um, advertised pre-race weekend that he was going to return for one race weekend only and then bow out. Um, that final race weekend taking place at Imola. Um, and early on, before we get to the actual race itself, Dre, mm. there was some heroics from Keenan Safoglu, it has to be said, because I don't think any of us quite knew what to expect from Keenan Safoglu, given how long it is since he's raced. He hadn't raced at all since Phillip Island back at the end of February, um, so near enough three months on the shelf for Keenan. Um, it was still very much questionable whether he was fully fit or not, um, mm. given what he's been through over the last year. Um, so we didn't quite know what to expect. But Keenan Safoglu, true to form, turns up, goes fifth quickest on Friday and qualifies on the front row of the grid. Of course he does. <laughs> it's, it's the most Keenan thing imaginable. Um, yeah, I, I can't say I'm surprised um, to a degree because he's just that good, quite frankly. But at the same time, yeah, he really is that good. Um yeah, he, it was brilliant. Like he's he's gone out of his way. I mean, again, he, he was rusty as all hell. He's not he's not ridden since the opening round of the season. Okay, another you know major injury as well, and he's he still found the way to uh, to bounce back um, like that. And again, the fact that he's put it back on the front row, the fact he made two pole two outright, came back, you know, got on the podium. Um, in terms of qualifying, he's got on the front row of the grid. Brilliant. Just a reminder of how of how brilliant this man can be. Not to mention, as we all know, it's a Yamaha-dominated series at the moment. We all know the R6 is busted compared to the rest of the field. Um, it is the best bike comfortably in Super Sport right now. No one's been able to crack it, but it, it, it goes to show you the class of Keenan that he's able to find the way to, to to still remain competitive on a bike that no one else is able to get consistently up the front right now in, in a field of strong, you know, a, a, field, a field of strong R60s. So, um, yeah, just another brilliant reminder of the class of Keenan Safoglu that he's just this good when he wants to be. So a front row start for Keenan Safoglu, or that is at least what we thought at the time. We were kind of actually at this stage kind of revving ourselves up for an exciting super sport race. And we did get it anyway. We'll come on to that shortly. Um, with Keenan Safoglu set to take on the Yamahas on the Kawasaki in his final World Superspot race. Um, But if you were watching this on Eurosport, you would have already been teed up as to what was going to happen after he spoke to Charlie Hiscott on the grid. If you were in the grandstands, or if you were perhaps watching this anywhere else but British Eurosport in the UK, uh, you may not have known what was going to happen. Um, Keenan Safoglu, for his final Supersport appearance, the final professional competitive race of his career, 
decides to pull in at the end of the sighting lap. Um, and his reasoning for that is that he couldn't break a promise to the president of Turkey, or indeed to his family, more to the point, um, with whom he'd promised he would never race again. Um, presumably this promise was made in the last couple of months while his injuries uh, were taking hold. Um, so many different sort of layers to this, Dre, but first of all, at first reaction when you saw it, what were you thinking? I was like, oh no. <laughs> it's like, I was like, did he get cold feet at the last minute? Uh, that's what I was thinking. I was, I was being a little bit more naive, I think, about the whole thing, saying, oh, you know, is he... Has he uh, done it at the last minute? Has he basically just pulled the bait and switch out of nowhere? But I, that's the thing. At the time, I did not listen to that Eurosport interview with Hiscott. So I was blind. I was as blind as everybody else was. Me neither. Um, I mean, I, I was at work and I went on to the World Team mm. Sport. I went on to the World Superbike app and the live timing to see how the race was going. And the first thing I noticed was I was scrolling down trying to find Keenan. And I saw him on the list of retirement to the bottom of the screen. And I was like, I don't tell me he's crashed. Yeah, I can I can imagine. I, I watched the race live, but I didn't. I had not seen the the pre-race British Eurosport interview. I just I just fired up my totally legal source to watch it when I was at work, and I saw what had happened. I was like, "Wait, where's Keenan?" <laughs> um, and and then obviously going to Twitter and finding out that he basically parked it on the warm-up lap. Um, yeah. So again, I I was as blind as 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 the fans were in the grandstands. I I had no idea what was going on. Um, so I was in shock more than anything else as to so what's happened. Like my thought was again I was being naive. I thought he would just gotten cold feet and just decided you know what no it's not worth it. Or like maybe like Nicky Lauda style at the end of Rush where he's yeah. where like Lauda you know I was just like you know what it's too dangerous I'm not going to risk it. And you know that little epiphany there from from Lauda I thought it was something similar to that but it turns out that was kind of the plan all along by the sounds of it. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm, I'm not so sure whether it was the panel log. I, well, I guess we'll never know. The only person mm. who will truly know is Keenum, but I don't know. I, 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 I struggle to believe that a rider would go all of the way to Imola um, to not start the race. I mean, he could have had a crash and injured himself if he practiced, couldn't he? Um, so it's, I, I wonder whether this was a decision that was made, like you say, cold feet. I wonder whether he made this decision morning of the race um, mm. and just sort of started to think to himself... I've made a promise here to my family not to race again, and here I am about to go and risk my life against 30 other riders on a super sport grid, um, and I don't feel right about this. Um, he's, right. In the official Kawasaki press release, he, he spoke about it, and he said that Friday went well, and on Saturday we took a front row super pole uh, grid position. It was a very great moment for me to be here. Dorna Kawasaki and my team organized a very nice event on the Saturday, and I felt that if I raced today, what was the reason that I would start? I felt I was not really physically ready to do this race. If I crashed with some of the championship challenges, if something happened, it could be very bad. I would feel I had damaged someone's championship. I was here for the show, not here for the goal, and I think the show was over. I came onto the grid onto the front row and said goodbye to everyone. I think this was the best decision to make. Honestly, this morning, I did not know what I was going to do. So that answers our question. Ah. I only decided not to race a few minutes before the start. My team was surprised, but they respected what I wanted. I did not want to break a promise to my family. Thank you to everybody. Thanks to Jonathan Ray, who came to my goodbye event at the Paddock Show, to my Turkish riders for the future, plus all of my Turkish fans. I was happy to be here, but this is not my decision to retire. My family and everyone that surrounded me persuaded me to retire. I'm here to say goodbye to racing and to say thank you uh, to everybody. Um, so he clearly made that decision at the last moment that he just... Hmm. He didn't want to do it. And I guess, I mean, we'll come on to, you know, how the, the significant others around him should have felt around this um, in a moment. But my first thought when this happened, Ray, and I, I finally found out the circumstances for it and that he just decided he didn't want to break a promise to a fam his family. 
it kind of lets you into the to the psyche of these high class, highly strung professional sportsmen, and it lets mm. you into the torment that these must all go through when they're reaching that point where they have to let it all go and hang up their helmets, and especially when it's a physical well-being decision. You can just see clear as day he's laid it all bare. Just the the mental torment he was going through, because you can tell in his mind he he dearly wanted to continue his career, but. There were voices in his head telling him loud and clear to stop. Yeah, uh, clearly. Um, as Jack Miller quite rightly pointed out during the Thursday press conference at the Circuit of the Americas, I remember him specifically saying, we're all human beings too. And it's something that I think we often forget as, as fans of this sport and as fans of sports in general, that you, these guys are human beings too. They have emotions. They have families like the rest of us. They're not They're not as, as far different as the rest of us and these are gladiators we're talking about i know people often use the word heroes with bike riders i don't think it's the appropriate word i've often used the term gladiators because i think that's a more fitting description of what these guys do and i, I can't imagine what it's like if you're a member of keenan's family if I, I, um, like, if, let's if not forget what he and his family have been through of course uh, on, on, a, on a very very personal level um you know for, it's been well documented, um, you know, Keenan for losing a kid, and you know he's the, his family's been devastated, and like if you're if you're Keenan's significant partner, I can't even imagine what you're going through. Like, imagine being told like the doctor's telling you one more significant injury could basically have life changing consequences. Um, of course, you're going to be screaming for him to stop. It, it, it reminds me. I don't know if you saw this a few weeks ago, Lewis, but um, it reminded me a lot of a letter somebody wrote in, M- in NCM talking about Ian Hutchinson, mm. um, the road racer. Um, that's obviously big deal for them this weekend. The Northwest 200 is going now, one of the biggest road racing events. And on there were the some very polarizing responses to that on social media yeah. too. Yeah, and I, th- I think, if I'm being honest, I think that the majority of the responses were negative against said mm. letter. I know, I know Josh Brooks very publicly lamblasted um, the writer for saying, like, you know, oh, it's ridiculous, like, he's being selfish. And I'm like, I was on the fence of, have a bit of empathy. Like, these guys are fans, and they, they don't want to see, like, their favourite rider die on track. And I don't think that's an unreasonable thought to have as a bike fan. And... We know it's dangerous. We know what these guys do is incredibly risky, and we know that, you know, it, it it it's it's a hard one to grasp. And the selfishness of us as bike fans and as guys that admire these athletes are gonna want to see him compete. But on the same token, like there is a level of physical and mental torment that we don't get to see a lot of the time. That often we don't get to see. That's the part that a lot of these guys keep to themselves. I mean. Again, I remember David Emmett talking about this at the end of last year, but but by the time you get to Valencia, pretty much every rider is dinged up or nursing injuries at the end Mm. of a tough 18-round calendar, and it's only going to get bigger from this year, 19 races this year, probably 20-plus in a couple of years' time, um, looking like the F1 calendar by the looks of it, and we often forget that as, as bike ride, as, as fans of these guys, and... You know, I think I've I've always said it. A little bit of empathy, I think, goes a long way. And I empathise with Keenan because that could not have been easy. Um, knowing that you've got, you know, family, important figures, loved ones telling you to like screaming at you to stop because not because you know they not because you know they 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 think they know better, but because they love him and they 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 don't want to see him get hurt. They don't want to see him take possibly a life end a life changing injury or 
possibly even worse. We, I mean, we, let's not forget that in bike racing as well, um, that fatalities do happen, and they're probably more frequent than we care to admit. Um, so, God, I can't imagine what it's like if you're part of the Sotfoglu family, or if you're a part of, you know, if you're part of the Turkish Sporting Administration, who put Keenan on a pedestal as probably their biggest athlete on the planet um, mm. in terms of in terms of you know t- you know Turkey and what he's done for the nation from a bike racing standpoint um, I can't imagine the amount of pressure that Keenan must have been under so for that to be a thing um, that could not have been an easy decision to make and I have to respect that even if it was a little bit last minute and I think if I'm being a little bit selfish, um, the fans not knowing was a bit of a shame because mm. I can imagine a lot of them have probably made a special effort to go down to Imola for that weekend, knowing it was Libby Keenan's last race. That was the focus of the weekend going into Sunday, no doubt. That you know, thank you, Keenan was 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 a significant hashtag of Superbikes coverage this weekend on social media. Um, so it's a shame that it ended that way. Um, I think the fans are have uh, got a little bit of a right to be a little bit grieved, but. I, I hope they can also understand where Keenan's coming from because that could not have been an easy decision. No, and just to give you, for those that perhaps aren't quite familiar with it, we, we have covered it in previous uh, years on Bike Live on our previous home with Keenan Safoglu and his, um, his personal tragedies that have gone on in his life and in his family. Mm. We, of course, we were on air um, with Downforce back in 2015 when Keenan Safoglu um, lost his baby son, Hamza, who um, was born... Uh, in March of that year and basically was fighting for his life for the next four months in hospital having suffered bleeding of the brain and, and lost that fight for life um, in July of that year that was a year that Keenan Safoglu remarkably and it's still one of the most incredible feats that I've seen in motorcycle racing while I've been watching it Keenan still went on to win the championship that year um, yeah, e- even though for four months of that season whilst he was racing his son was in hospital fighting for his life um, in you know the first months of his life and obviously they turned out to be the last months of his life he also lost two brothers his two brothers uh, he has two brothers and a sister and both of those brothers have uh, been killed in motorcycle accidents um, uh, previously as well so Keenan's endured a lot of tragedy in his life um, in, as far as the Suffoglu family is concerned and I suppose when it all comes down to it, given how precarious it could be if he crashes again, I don't think he just wanted to subject his family to another of those tragedies. Um, and, yeah. and, and I don't think anyone can necessarily blame him for that. You're absolutely right. In terms of the circumstances of it, um, if, you're, uh, if you're a spectator, I, I, if you're being selfish, and you know, if, I think just for us wanting to see a great race and wanting to see the Hollywood ending um, for Keenan, we would have mm. all loved to have seen him gone out with a win. Um, to go out Absolutely. there, beat beat Clozel, beat Mahias, right up into the sunset and say, see you later, chaps, I'm finished. Um, but in many ways, as you say, we, we don't have to like the way he went out, but we certainly have to respect it. Um, and, and given what he's been through on track and off track, he has earned the right, in my view, um, to choose the way um, he retires. Mm-hmm. It, it does kind of um, bring to light uh, an interesting sort of question, though. It's a hypothetical, and we'll never know the answer to it, but... Sure. I mean, Keenan Safoglu is held in such high esteem at Pichetti that I kind of think they'd have entered him anyway. But if Keenan Safoglu had announced this a week ago that he was going to go to Imola, take bike for practice, and then pull off the end of the sighting lap, I wonder if Pichetti would have even entered him. It's an interesting question. I mean, Pichetti has been with Keenan for a long time. Um, would they, as a team, sacrifice a potential twenty-five points just to basically just to have Keenan bow out? Because um, the, he admitted the team was surprised, which mm. makes me think the team had no idea this was coming. No. Um, and like, 
if they'd have known a week out that Keenan had no intention of racing whatever the qualifying outcome or whatever, I'm not sure they would have ran him. I'm, no. Or at least they would have just ran a, a second or a third bike. Yeah, I think they'd have probably just, said to Keenan, look, come to Imola, you can still have your farewell, you can still go on the pit wall, you can still go into part five after the race, but let's mm. let someone else qualify and race the bike. Yeah, that would have been fair. I, I mean, I, because Pachetti is a team have basically had a, a, a zero weekend to yeah. say goodbye Sheldon to Keenan. Sheldon Bryce has been on the bike the last two rounds. He could have raced it. Yeah, why not? Like, and and it, I, it, it does Pachetti feel that strongly about Keenan? They were willing mm. to throw an entire weekend away for him. I'm not sure. It's a business at the end of the day, and costs a know, lot of money to, uh, to send that bike around the world. Of course, absolutely. That, that's that's probably tens of thousands of pounds to do that, and like, is that worth throwing away for a PR expense uh, for Keenan? I don't know. I don't run their balance sheets. I can't tell you. But I, I again, if the fact that the team was surprised kind of says to me that they were probably hoping he was going to race that weekend. Mm. I mean, we were told he was going to race that weekend. That was what every press release said. There was no inkling that Keenan was only going to run until basically run through Saturday. There was no indication until obviously, according to by Keenan's own admittance, now that we've read the press release, that like he made a, he made pretty much a last minute decision um, not to race not to race on Sunday morning. And yeah, I feel like the harsh man in me wants to say that's a little bit unprofessional. But mm. at the same token, I get where he's coming from. I get, I get the mental side of it. It's there, there's no winner in this scenario. It's a lose lose for everybody. And I understand, like Pachetti, understandably, um, if they were if they were a bit peeved internally, obviously they would never admit that in public. But um, if they if if they are a bit pissed behind the scenes, I could understand as well because Keenan. If you if you look if you take the emotional side out of it, you could say he strung them along a little bit here. Um, and if it was anybody else, we'd say that was a bit shitty. That was like a, a bit like a Maverick Vinales situation, where it's like he's taken his ball and he's gone home, um, basically. But I, again, like it's it's a tough one on both sides because there is a there is a big grey area there. Basically, given because of what how Keenan's treated the weekend is basically left it almost open to interpretation um, as as to what the plan was going to be. I, I, again, I don't think oh, it's clear he didn't tell Pachetti what he was going to do, and it, it was it was clear it was a spontaneous decision. And when it's spontaneous like that, I mean, a team can't force a rider to race at the end of the day, and they shouldn't force a rider to race. Um, so it's a lose lose for everybody, unfortunately. But there was—I don't think there was any good way of that being no. done by the looks no, of it. It was one of those. Uh, Manuel Pochetti, speaking after the race, said, "This is a difficult moment for the team. In our very first season in 2015, we got the title. That was the title Keaton won, um, despite all that mm. tragedy going on in the background." He asks 100% of the team and gives more than 100% in return. Uh, and I think that's that, that in the end is the crux of it. That Keaton Safogli has done so much for that team for Kawasaki. Um, for World Super Sport, mm-hmm. for Turkey, um, that I think whether any of us agree with what he's done or not, we can kind of accept and respect his right for doing so. Mm, um, just to give you the final numbers on Kenan Safoglu, five times a World Super Sport champion. The first of those coming in 2007, um, the same year James Toesland was a World Superbike champion. That's how long ago it was. Um, 2010, 2012, 2015, and again in 2016. 
um, Kidna Sofoglu uh, winning the World Supersport Championship. He was also runner-up last year, as we know, to Lucas Mayas. And in 2013, he was the runner-up, famously, uh, to Sam Lowe's. Um, so he could easily be standing here a seven-time um, Supersport World Champion. He has been the greatest rider of them all in the history of this 600cc uh, production class. 43 career wins um, in Supersport, which is a hell of a lot, considering that this is a class that very rarely races more than 11, 12 times a season. Um, so for him to win 43 is incredible. 26 of those coming for Kawasaki. 85 career podiums. 46 of those coming um, on the ZX6 of Kawasaki. And 34 career pole positions. All of those are World Super Sport records. Um, and you get the feeling he will forever hold the record of five world titles in this class. Especially given nowadays that many riders see Supersport as a class that they pass on through on their way up to better things and bigger things. Yeah. Um, it, it, it will never yeah. be topped in so my opinion. It, those are records that will probably stand uh, for all time. Um, as we say, he, it's an incredible career and he has more than overcome his uh, his hurdles off the track as well as on it. Um, and we join the rest of the world um, in World Supersport and in motorcycle racing by simply saying thank you, Keenan. Indeed. Uh, right then, the, a race did take place uh, without him in the end and um, it started with that bizarre um, sort of curious uh circumstance of Sofoglu pulling in um, no more curious than Lucas Mayas, the pole man who was sat turning his head to look at Sofoglu on the pit wall while waving at the crowd on the pit straight with his arms up in the air thinking hey what's going on guys um, like, we've got a race to start here what's he doing over there um, in the right. end uh, the race we got was brilliant and it, it didn't in the end Ray at the front involve Lucas Mayas, the world champion and um, championship leader pre-race and pole sitter um we're not going to know at the end of the season how crucial this moment will end up being. Um, but I don't think it's a reach to say that Mahayas threw away an almost certain victory there. Yeah, he was clear of that of what, of what actually ended up being the leading pack in the end. He had a good couple of seconds in hand and like I, I love the moment where Greg Haynes is trying to figure out like where is he? Yeah. Like the hard camera didn't pick up, didn't pick up the accident just straight away. And we're like, well, where is he? <laughs> and all of a sudden, Lucas is buff, missing. Buff of gravel and yeah, a puff of gravel and, a, and like a streak of pink in the in the, in the corner of a background. We know what's happened. Um, yeah, Lucas had binned it and he was able to continue and he managed to claw his way back up the field um, to an extent. But that was a silly mistake from Lucas. The first I think he, I've really ever seen him make at the front of a race like that. We had a, just overcooked it, overcooked it down down the back down the back of the straight and. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, like, how's he done that? Like, you just don't expect, you just don't expect that from Lucas at all. He he's normally rock solid at the front of the race, and he's just overcooked it, thrown himself off the bike, and he's had to compromise his race by having to fight back through the point positions and end up what was it? I think it was, I want to say, was eighth in the end, something like he that. He did. He got about um, to eighth, which is actually a really good result in those yeah. circumstances, given yeah, where, he, where he fell back to. But but yeah, it, it was bizarre because. The bedrock of his championship winning campaign last year was his consistency and his, his, his not throwing up the road. He only had the one crash all year, and that was at Mizano, um, when he probably would have finished second there too um, to Keenan, who mm. had that habit of beating every weekend, even though Mahias had that amazing head start at the start of the year. Um, but but yeah, this season, the odd mistake has crept in. He did have injuries earlier in the season, but but it is a strange one how Mahias has, has kind of not taken this championship by the scruff of the neck, even though... The man we thought was going to be his main contender um, is no longer a part of proceedings. Mahias has now had, as we look through his results, um, he's not had a podium since Thailand. Incredibly, he's been fourth, fourth, and eighth Indeed. since then. 
um, despite having the pace, arguably, to win at least two of those, if not three, um, since that point. Sure. Um, and it's kept the championship close. In his absence, Mahias did, in the end, recover, as Dre mentioned, to eighth, um, which was a great result under the circumstances. What a great race we got, Dre. Um, a four-way fight up the front, and, much like Asset, another defensive masterclass from Jules Clazel. Ah, uh, Clazel, like a London bus. You wait a long time, and then two come along at once. Uh, you know, that's Clazel, um, that again, I say, that was an absolute defensive masterclass. That was like a, a textbook lesson in how to not let your man pass you. Um, again, just broke so late, didn't give any opponent an inch. Like, Caracasulo had no way of getting through. It was as simple as that. He could he he left it so Caracasulo couldn't even dive bomb him. He just he just did not have the legs to be able to put a move on Clazelle. And like he we've we've seen those two go to war before. And the lesson is Clazelle is a notoriously hard man to pass. Um, so if you let Clazelle take the front. That might be game over because he's just so difficult to pass. Second race in a row, he's had a pack behind him, was wanting to pass him, and they just can't do it. He's just so good at that, and he's done it again here. A a, a brilliant, brilliant performance from Clazell again, and just um, and in Imola, right, it's so susceptible to passing. There's a lot of heavy braking zones around there, and a lot of places he, where you can overtake people if you're ballsy enough. And he's been able to hold off the, the a rabid chasing field of, of, of three behind him, trying to beat him over the line, and nobody could do it. Just a brilliant performance all round. Mm, it was. It was. It was a brilliant effort, a brilliant defensive performance, and he was he was just quick enough in the areas that mattered um, around Imola to to hold him off. Like he was quick out of the chicane of Varianti Alta down to the Ravazza, the corner where Mahias crashed, um, which meant that I mean, most knows we on the final lap where. Caracasulo made a bit of a silly move, really, trying to dive up the inside into that top chicane when it was never yeah. really on, and that basically penalised him down the straight to the main overtaking place on the track. Uh, but we saw for several laps De Rosa trying to have a go at him, didn't we? And that just never worked, because um, any time he did get up the inside, he was having to break so late to get up the inside of Clouzel, that Clouzel was just basically mugging him on the exit of the corner again. And it was a superb defensive display um, from Jules Clouzel. And um, with the various dramas for Mayas and with Cortese, he's not really building on his win and Aragon. Um, Jules Cluzel, who, when we spoke after Thailand, we kind of feared this was going to be another nearly year for Cluzel. A third in Aragon and then back-to-back wins has brought him right into the thick of the championship again. It has. Um, and this is where Cluzel should be, really, as a rider. He, he's always been a quality rider. He's always been in or around the front, capable of winning races. This is where Cluzel should be, at the front where he belongs. And, like, I'm, I'm glad he's taken this opportunity with the Nerds team to, again, as you say, take the championship by the scruff of the neck, doing what we'd expect someone like Lucas to be doing, where he's just getting these critical results when he needs to, and he's doing a brilliant job of doing it right now. And why not Clazell thinking, you know, thinking title with him the way he's riding at the moment? He's been fantastic the last two or three rounds now, in contention for the win, won the last two, and he's... he's yeah, he's starting to assert his will on this championship, and this is with some really, really fast dudes behind him. So, yeah, he's doing a brilliant job. Why not think bigger? Why not think championship the way he's riding at the moment? Yeah, he is a three-time championship runner-up in the World Team Sport Championship. So often the nearly man. Twice of those were to Safoglu, once as well to Michael Vandermark um, back in 2014 when Vandermark was on the Honda. Um, the last time Honda won this championship. Um, so, yeah, so often the nearly man, but this season might well be a little different. And... Um, we saw Rafa de Rosa, who isn't at the moment a championship contender because he's still a little way back. He's just over 25 points behind um, the championship leader with five ahead of him. But 
This guy, who has been a journeyman in recent years in motorcycle racing at all, never amounted to anything in Moto2 when he rode in that paddock um, mm-hmm. back at in you know the start of this decade. Uh, but boy, is he making that MV Augusta go. He's doing a fantastic job on that bike. Uh, I mean, he's again another guy that's been in the mix the last two or three rounds now. We, we've we've we know MV's reputation is not great. They are not they do not have the resources of a Yamaha or a Kawasaki or anybody really. Yeah, well, Yamaha round, Yamaha locked out the roster in the first three rounds, and now DeRose has been third in consecutive races. Indeed, he, like the back-to-back podiums, and he's again he's he's right on the brink of victories. He's doing a fantastic job and. Again, this is on. This is on an MV that is nowhere near the level competitively of the Yamaha or the Kawasaki that Keenan was bringing into play on a regular basis. Um, and we know that MV's not got the resources to fight Yamaha head on. They just don't. So the fact that the Rosa is 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 giving them a run for their money on almost every occasion, he's doing a brilliant job. Brilliant, brilliant job. And just rewards for De Rosa, who um, has clearly been the stronger of the two riders within his team, with Badavidi struggling on the sister bike. Um, and yeah. just rewards for the ethics because he was robbed of a possible podium in Aragon when the engine blew up on him um, and he's gone third, third since then having fought for the win uh, in both of those races uh, just behind him in fourth was Sandro Cortese who as I mentioned has not quite built on the victory that he got at Aragon he was sixth from pole position in Assen and then fourth uh, albeit a very close fourth uh, at Imola um, last weekend but we genuinely have to create a five-way championship fight at the moment. And DeRosa is just lurking in the background. Rafa DeRosa is 30 points off the lead in sixth. But at the moment, we have Randy Krumenacker uh, leading the championship on 81 points. And he's taken the championship lead despite having arguably his poorest weekend of the year. Yes, it's funny about that, isn't it? Like, like this wasn't the great Krumenacker comeback of recent times. He, he legitimately was not really in the mix this time round. And um, yeah, a, a kind of a lonely fifth place for, for him on this occasion. But despite that, consistency gets getting the results for him in the end. No, no, say consistency with, a, with kind of a with a pinch of salt, really, um, because of, well, the simple fact that, he, you know, like he's, he's come from the back. He's, he's, he's had to deal with some raw situations, but he's come back strong. And this one's sort of no different here. But this time around, yeah, this was uh, this was the first weekend where I think Kribenaka was just genuinely off the pace mm. um, of the leading group. But yet, despite that, a fifth is still a fifth place. It's still it's still 11 points, and it's still um, putting him in the championship lead. So, again, which goes to show you that how close the championship is right now. We've got four or five main contenders at the moment, and he's just doing the Lord's work. He's just getting these solid results right now and, you know, not making any major mistakes. And that can sometimes be enough when, when it's, this when it's this close and this competitive at the moment mm, because Krubenakis he only finished 11th at Aragon but remember he crashed in that race so he probably would have finished higher um, had he not been it there and of course second in Assen came from the very back of the grid um, that weekend right. hence he got a title of this podcast named after him um, but hey. um, but yeah there's so many stories to this you look at Federico Caracasulo who's fifth at the moment in the championship and finished second last weekend he'd possibly be leading the whole thing had he not been involved in that incident where you know, depending on who you believe, contact was not may or may not have been made with Luke Stapleford and Assen. Um, that's his right. only DNF. And besides that, he's been fourth, third, second, second in the races that he's finished this year, Caracasulo. Uh, Clozel mm. would possibly be way out the front of this had he not had those two poor races at the start of the year. Mohias has kind of had a dip lately. Um, Cortese, likewise. Krubenacker has um, had the one win, but he's had two seconds to go with it and possibly the ride of the year. Stories everywhere you look, Dre, and... Pound for pound, once again, World Supersport is delivering as compelling and as exciting a championship battle 
as we're getting anywhere on two wheels at the moment, aren't we? Five riders all on the same motorcycle, all on Yamaha R6s, and only 12 points separates them, and we're five rounds in. Yeah, don't forget the Rosa in there as well. So, like, at the moment, I, like, I, I said on Twitter to a friend of the show, Keenan, Kevin Walsh, listen to every show. Hi, Kevin. Um, and he said to me, and I agreed with him, where he said to me straight up, listen, like, there is, at the moment, six really, really fast riders in this class right now. Five of them on the Yamahas. Again, Rafael De Rosa in the mix as well on the MV, who, again, is punching well above his weight on that motorcycle. Like, this is in a post-Keenan world, there is six dudes who have got a realistic chance of winning this championship at the moment. I've never seen Super Sport like that. It feels like the class is on a bit of a resurgence at the moment. I've never seen any class like that. No, like, we have six top-tier runners at the moment with, you know, Caracasulo, Cortese... Uh, Mahias, you know, Rafael De Rosa, Plazel, you know, and Krimenaka. Like, those are your top six, and I think they're a clear top six compared to everybody else right now. And it's fantastic. I've, I've not, there's nothing like it in bike racing at the moment, at least in my humble opinion. That, that I don't think any competitive sport in the world, can, like any bike series now, can, can, can consistently claim we have six front runners. And, and it's a clear six front runners at the moment. He's, like, it's fantastic. And again, we, we say this, this is a six-man field with no Keenan Sofoglu. In a post-Keenan world, we have arguably a resurgence in world super sport racing. I only hope the manufacturers realizes and keeps supporting the 600cc sport bike class in general because it's not looked brighter ever in at least in my humble opinion anyway yeah certainly in terms of entertainment and just like i say pound for pound in terms of producing compelling exciting racing and a championship well worth watching super sport mm. is delivering once again um at the moment um and as i mentioned we're, we're deeper to the season now it's not like it's still early like donington next round in a week's time will mark the halfway stage in the super sport season given that they don't go to the guna seca um so it will be halfway through by the time the next round is all said and done um so there's every reason to suggest that it's going to stay this close to the year and just imagine mm-hmm. if we get to qatar at the end of the season in november and we have as many as five riders who could still win the championship. We're going all F1 2010 on their asses at the moment, aren't we? Oh, um, yeah. With the way this season's going on. So let's hope it continues. Um, here's how the race finished then um, in Imola. Cluzel the winner for the second weekend in a row. Caracasulo second. Uh, then came De Rosa third. Cortese fourth. Krumanaka fifth. Um, Ant West on the one remaining. Pichetti Kawasaki sixth. Nicky Tooley, seventh. More on him in a second. Um, my ass, the championship leader at the start of the race, eighth. Luke Stapleford, the only uh, triumph to make the finish, ninth. And Ikario Kubo, Safoglu's ex-teammate, now sole Pachetti rider, tenth. Uh, Rob Hartog, the leading ESS runner, eleventh. Uh, Gradinger, teammate to Cluzel, twelfth. Loris Cresson, teammate to Cortese, thirteenth. Uh, Andy Irwin, first points for him in fourteenth. Um, and in the end... We have to mention Thule, don't we, Dre? Because I mean, we're, we're not going to be able mm. to talk about him again in this Super Sport season, but he has um, earned himself a career move um, because he has now signed for the Sepang International Circuit team in the Moto2 class. They have been running Zulfami Kairu Din in the first few rounds of this season, having lost Hafish Sire in to MotoGP. Um, and I think that's a good career move for all concerned, isn't it? I mean, he, he's not exactly hit the same heights this year that he did on the Yamaha last year, but he did no. show in sporadic appearances as wild cards the year before last and last year when he won his first round at Magni Corps, that there is serious talent there. Um, so for him to get off to Moto2, I think for the Sepang team, I think that's a, a risk-free signing. For Thule, it's a great opportunity. 
Yeah, I mean, why not? If you're Nikki Tuli, it's a great opportunity. Moto2 is the premier 600cc Especially with a Finn GP around the corner. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's got a home round coming up too as well. That's that's only going to go over well. The Finns love their love their motorsport. They love their motorsport athletes as well. So that's a nice pull for bike racing in general to have Nicky Tooley jump over. Um, again, as you say, not quite as good as he was um, last year at the moment. He's struggled a little bit by comparison this year in Supersport, but still a talented rider, a guy that can win races. He's been up the field on multiple occasions. Um, so, yeah, this seems like a great move for all parties. They, they, they need a, a decent young rider in a team, and they've got one in there in Nick Tooley. And if, uh, we'll see how well he adapts to uh, to, to uh, Moto2 and the, you know, obviously the different chassis and whatnot over there in, in the 600cc class over there. But looking forward to seeing how he produces. I think it's a great move. Hmm. I never told you, by the way, who got the final point of that race. If any of you were interested, it was the wildcard Nicolette Morantino Jr., uh, championship standings as they are run at the moment. We've kind of given you a preview of them. Um, Krumanaka, the new leader um, on the Even Bros Yamaha, he has 81 points. Two ahead of Mahias, who has 79. Third is Cortese, 77. Fourth, Cluzel, 75. And then fifth, Caracasulo on 69. 12 points covers the top five riders in the championship. And we're nearly halfway through the season. What a season we're having. Rafa de Rosa is in sixth on 51 points. Um, so he's only 30 off the lead himself. If he can uh, notch a win on that MV, he would be right in the shakeup as well. Uh, Luke Stapleford is just six points further behind de Rosa in seventh on the Triumph. Uh, Nicky Tooley, who won't ride again in Supersport this year, is eighth at the moment on 38. He is currently the top Honda rider in the championship, but probably won't stay that way. Out West is ninth on 27 points. And Thomas Gradinger is 10th on 22 uh, Loris Cress on 11th, and then the next of the Hondas, uh, and as it stands, probably the de facto lead Honda rider in the championship now, is the Brit Kyle Smith in 12th on 19 points. Um, on to Supersport 300 uh, next, which um, didn't produce a very close race at the front, but it was a race where more history was made. And um, for the Supersport 300 class, Dre, we have to kind of start back on Saturday in Super Pole. Um, because mm. the story of the weekend was Anna Carrasco absolutely laying the smackdown on a bunch of kids um, in World Supersport. And that kind of started in Super Pole, where she made all of the boys look absolutely foolish. Yeah, everybody else was out there trying to get a toe off each other. Nobody wanted to lead the chasing group, um, which led to some complete dawdling and some absolute silliness and penalties handed out for next weekend as a result of... The classic Moto3 style dawdling on the racing line that we've been talking about in that series for the last couple of years now. Um, we're starting to see it in Supersport 300 now where guys are doing anything and everything to get some sort of advantage and it was com completely terrible. Um, and Anna Carrasco has gone out there on her own, no toe required, has gone out there and just racked up laps and just found time on, on every single occasion. Um, Pole position was by one whole yeah. second magnificent like just on her own didn't need a tow no bullshit no messing about just went out there and completely dominated everybody and got faster and faster on on every single lap just found those key differences just cleaned it up and yeah made all the boys look fucking ridiculous quite frankly it was a magnificent performance from Carrasco and and that was like the second most impressive thing she did all weekend it was it was magnificent for Anna mm. just 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 the class of the field on, on this weekend the most impressive thing came 24 hours later in the race on the Sunday now there was a lot of chaos behind it which we'll cover in a moment um but the performance that we got from Carrasco Drake um I mean she 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 was the race winner and daylight was second 
Um, it, it, it was that mm. it was that dominant win. She won an eleven lap race by fourteen point eight seconds, um, which, which is absolutely ludicrous. Um, I don't even need to check it to know that that's the largest margin of victory in Super Sport three hundred history. Um, and uh, what a ride for the what a ride for the girl. And she's now taking the world championship lead, and she looked every inch the best rider in the class. Um, last mm. weekend, as we said, and she has been a fairly consistent front-running contender so far this season as well. As we said, it's not like yeah, she's just yeah. suddenly appeared up the front um, this weekend. She's been up in the top six earlier on in the season too. Um, but I mean, just an incredible, incredible ride for her. And again, it kind of flies in the face of the fact that in these kind of lower capacity, lightweight classes, you need a toe to be quick. She was a second and a half a lap quicker than the riders behind her riding on her own. Um, and in many ways as well, it's a, it's a lesson for many riders who, like Carrasco in the past, have perhaps not quite made the grade in Moto3. Um, and it would be perhaps a little harsh to say that Carrasco never made the grade. I mean, she finished in the top 10 before, which in a class mm-hmm. that competitive, you still need to be good to achieve that level of performance. Um, Absolutely. But to, to come out of that class and say, essentially, it's trying to find a new career for yourself. Carrasco has gone ahead and done that. And she might well end up with a world championship to her name before everything's said and done here. Yeah, again, this 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 was not a fluke by any measure. She's been in the mix all season long. She was in the mix last season when she made history to be the first woman to win a world championship race at Portimao last season. So this this is no fluke. This is no coincidence. Like she has always had top tier level pace in this class. Yeah, sixth and, and fourth in the first two races. Mm. Indeed. And so, again, like this, this has been coming. And obviously, the margin of victory is a complete shock. But like this she this is not a fluke result by any measure she has been a top tier racer in this class for some time as you say she was you know she she did struggle a little bit in moto 3 in that world championship but again the fact she she had top 10 finishes shows again you you don't fluke those in moto 3 in the world championship you've you've got to have some level of skill to be able to even finish that high up quite frankly so yeah she's translated this super well to to the 300cc bikes that we're seeing now in the, in the World Super Sport category in the 300 category and she's again that was that was utterly magnificent not a surprise and not and again not a total surprise at all especially after qualifying that she was a second and a half a lap quicker than everybody else it just goes to show you as all well, the confidence that she has as well where you got that much confidence in your own pace where you can where you can effectively run like that um on your own not even thinking about getting a toe just going to the front leading from the front and then just completely dominating like who needs a toe when you're that quick it's it, it was phenomenal um by by all accounts yeah i mean i mean race wins like that don't make particularly compelling tv but i, I love race wins like that where essentially the, the the guy or the girl out in front in this case basically goes out there and decides i'm just gonna set my own pace here guys see if you can keep up um and, and, and right. none of them could uh, in the end not even close um, for Carrasco, who I, I was so impressed by her interview post race as well, especially for someone whose English isn't their first language, and she just took it all in her stride. Because you've got to think, someone like her, her life must have changed since that that win she got in Portimao last year, and the the publicity mm. that made. I mean, she made the New York Times for goodness sake with the with the win that she oh, took. Oh yeah, and she just seems to be taking it all in her stride and just going about her business. I mean, she just seemed so. There didn't seem to be any seemed sense of euphoria at all. She seemed to be so calm and measured about it all. Yeah, she was. She handled it like a true professional. Like there was, you would never have guessed um, by listening to her that one that you know English was a second language, and just just, just the fact that 
she's so professional and just like she's got the weight like she's basically the arguably the biggest female influence in in motorcycle racing period right now um especially after her win last year making history is that you know we don't have a female influence in in grand on the grand prix side of the ladder era at the moment at least but we do have two now in the super sport 300 class of her and maria herrera yeah, she was seven um, and she was 17 she had a great result in her own right as well um so yeah like she's probably the biggest female influencer in bike racing right now across the world and as as i mentioned like like do not underestimate the coverage that she got from from that win in portamao last year she again like new york times national papers were picking up on this as well about the history being made here like this is a big deal this is a very big deal and again she you would never have guessed that by listening to her interviews she she acted like she'd been here before and she has and let's not forget that so yeah and an, an important victory but she's handling it like a true pro and she's like again you would never get never have guessed she was female um unless you read her name by the way she's handled the pressure and just the, the state of play right now of her being in this position she's doing a fantastic job and, and it shows mm, absolutely brilliant job i mean it has to be said though as well as the all of the positives that we're taking from the super spot 300 race this class is going to give us all some gray hairs isn't it dre i mean the they the, the the, the the action behind her was was thrilling but also terrifying at times um i mean we saw the the madcap final lap at assen where uh, it ended with uh, poor con muffles the the dutch kid on the ktm losing his brakes into the final corner this Ugh. time at imola um we had nikita kalinin on the ktm basically going hard right down the pitch straight into the wall um, oh, and, and God, somehow escaping any major injury. I mean, he's broken his leg, but amazingly, that's the worst of it. Um, and then we had the crash further on, where we had uh, Robert Shopman crashing, and then the, um, the the Spanish wildcard who was running just behind him, um, the uh, the Spaniard Gonzalez, the European Talent Cup champion, basically rode straight over him. Um, and mm-hmm. again, I think we're pretty much thankful in both of those instances that these bikes are so lightweight, and compared to the superbikes so relatively slow because those both could be so much worse absolutely again these are these are low speed bikes only have about 40 horsepower so um thankfully like they're not particularly fast in the grand scheme of bike racing but as proven they can still cause serious injury um thankfully as i mentioned this was not the worst of it and uh, it, it could have easily been a lot worse in, in the context of, of what was going on but um i mean rider plows into a wall you're thinking that's macau and if you're thinking macau you're thinking the worst so um yeah thank god it was it, it was nothing more serious than a broken leg in this case and it could have easily been a whole lot worse so um yeah thankful for that but at the same time yeah this series might have to start doing something about rider standards very soon because it's, it seems to be getting a little bit out of hand now this is becoming a more frequent story than i'd like to admit i mean it's just i mean it's not a case of dirty riding isn't it it's just basically riders crashing and uh, a number of these crashes that we're seeing are involving riders either crashing in very unusual places by you know making contact with others and then either spearing off in Callanin's case or losing their brakes in Muffle's case at the previous race um or just as, as we mentioned with with Shotman just crashing and then just tripping up another rider and essentially being just flat out run over which was which was a terrifying one um, we also had another last lap cl- uh, crash, this one involving the uh, pre-race championship leader, Scott DeRue, who uh, took victory in the first round of the season. Oh, sorry, took second in the first round of the season, and then a- another podium finish um, in Assa, which gave him the series lead. Um, he went down at Aquamina Raleigh on the final lap whilst running second. 
um, and as a result loses the championship lead as a result. Carrasco took the win by 14 and a half seconds, um, as I mentioned, uh, from Borja Sanchez in the end, who took third on the road behind the Italian wildcard Kevin Sabatucci, um, but the Italian exceeded track limits on the way out the final corner and was told to drop a, split, a place post-race, uh, which relegated him to third in the end. Uh, so Sanchez taking second um, from Sabatucci. Luca Grunwald, the Assen winner, um, in fourth place in the end for the uh, Freudenberg KTM team. Uh, Galang Hendra, the winner of the final round last season, the Indonesia, uh, Indonesian rider who won at Jerez. He's fifth, or he was fifth last weekend, uh, with Janik, the German, in sixth. Maria Herrera, who we mentioned a moment ago, in seventh. Mika Perez, who was last year's pole man and winner at Imola, eighth. Um, Glenn Van Stralen, who was second at Assen, ninth. And Valid Khan completed the top 10. The rest of the points were handed out to Doran Lorero, um, who's a South African. Bernardi and Ravelli, the Italians, who were 12th and 13th. Kupman, another Dutchman in 14th. And Iozzo, another South African, taking the final point uh, in 15th place in the end. Championship standings then. Carrasco takes the championship lead as a result of that crash for Daru on the final lap. She is three points clear of Grunwald in second. Um, Daru's dropped to third on 36 points, so he is 12 off the lead. Glenn Van Straal in fourth, level with his compatriot Daru. Um, Sanchez with his second place, his first podium of the year in fifth. Muffles, who hasn't scored a point since his win at Aragon in the first round, is sixth. Mika Perez up to seventh. Kalin in eighth, um, although we probably won't see him for a while after his broken leg that he suffered at the weekend. Valicar ninth, and Larrero is tenth in the championship on 22 points. So at the moment, 26 points covers the top ten in the Supersport 300 class, and we are three rounds in. then belatedly uh, let's talk world superbike the uh, premier class in the paddock which we're coming on to third on uh, on our list so far um and as i mentioned right at the top of the show another record-breaking and history-making weekend for one jonathan ray who um we spoke last weekend ray um pre-race weekend on last week's show that this was a to all intents and purposes a ducati weekend on paper at least um given mm-hmm. how davies has doubled up in each of the last two years here and if uh, Kawasaki and Ray were going to win in Imola, that would really set the alarm bells ringing. Well, they are ringing loud and clear at Bologna right now. Um, yeah, um, we underestimated Kawasaki on this one, and they just they just hit the ball out of the park for six. Um, this is a problem. This is a big problem here, folks. Like they had their Bruno test in between this round. And they talked about how Kawasaki had basically fundamentally changed the entire bike going into this similar the weekend, and talking about the like, well, what the possibilities of what could happen to him out here. Um, and yeah, they were brilliant. They were they were outstanding. Like they completely dominated the weekend, and Jonathan Ray has taken a near flawless double. Um, as it stands, he's just again just Jonathan was just unstoppable. All weekend long, like, uh, oh, my word. Um, there was nothing anybody could do to stop him. Race one took off. No one had an answer for him. Race two started to start from ninth. Sing- again, only the second time we've had a repeat winner this season in the same weekend. The, only, the, only the second double of the year. And it, it, the double is so much harder now because of how close the field is. But Jonathan 
made it look relatively comfortable in the end. He was just outstanding. Nothing more you could say about it. Was was absolutely brilliant. Mm. Uh, and uh, you're right to mention what Kawasaki had done since uh, the last round, uh, most notably at that Bordeaux test, because um, without taking anything away from Johnny Ray here, I looked at that race one result, and obviously I watched the race uh, live as well, and I'm thinking to myself, if Tom Sykes is taking second and Kawasaki are going one and two at Imola, um, uh-huh. and, and even I'm, I'm prepared to admit, as does the Tom Sykes fan amongst us, that he ain't had the best of seasons so far. No. Um, even if Assen was the high point and he, he went into that weekend on a high having got the win in Assen but if Kawasaki are dominating from the front and taking a pretty unchallenged one too at Imola of all places then Ducati have to start panicking they do they, they, there's no doubt about it. this is one of their bank rounds from last season and they've not picked up a victory and Chaz has, has, has lost significant ground to Jonathan in the championship race again yeah, and they, they weren't even into- a match for Sykes yeah, they're in a match for Sykes, they, and they go into Donington, which is Sykes' land, unfortunately. And if Sykes is going to be fast, Jonathan will be fast too. That's inevitable. Um, so they're going into this weekend now, or going into Donington next week, or this weekend, technically speaking, um, by the time this goes out, most likely. Um, they're going into Donington now, probably on the back foot, knowing that Kawasaki will probably be really strong here as well. Um, so again, problematic stuff for Ducati going into going into a, a, another critical weekend at Donington. Um, and as it stands, like they're in big trouble. Mm, they are. And, and, I, and I look at the way this has fallen. I, I think this is largely coincidental. But of course, Ducati looked to have the strongest bike, quite quite clearly the strongest bike, in the first three rounds of the season. Um, those were Philip Island, Thailand and Aragon. We then had the first cutoff point where the technical aspects of the sport could be reassessed with it being the the rev limits or concession parts for manufacturers mm. etc since then kawasaki have won four out of four and it's highly likely that they're going to by the time donington's all said and going to have won six out of six mm-hmm. since that point uh, which obviously could lead to them being severely handicapped post donington um now uh, do you like me do you think this is purely coincidental and that it's more to the point coincided with Kawasaki's Bruno breakthrough, or have the regulations seriously hamstrung Ducati? I don't think it's. I don't think that's the case. I mean, I mean, they, the, the 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 technical constraints was they gave they gave everybody else two hundred and fifty revs. I don't think that's going to make such a massive difference that it's opened no. up the can and Kawasaki's now all of a sudden half a second faster. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more a case of the Bruno test and the radical Rio restructuring of the bike that they've done. And it looks like it's made a massive difference. Um, it's made Jonathan a lot quicker. Um, and yeah, like Kawasaki have always embraced this part of the season. They knew this was going to be a thing. They knew they were going to be hampered. They knew they were going to have to you know, you know, think outside of the box to try and get back into play. And that's exactly what they've gone and done. They, they've done a, a great job too. You know, the, the balance was definitely tilting in Ducati's favour earlier in the season. And they turned it right around um, since then. Um, Ray taking an unchallenged victory from pole position, let's not forget, in race one. Um, so Sykes remains uh, waiting for that all-time pole record that um, he's been tied with Corset since Phillip Island. Um, and he's still tied with him uh, four rounds on. Um, but as much as his race one win was impressive to Ray, I was more impressed and, from Ducati's point of view, more concerned by the way he won race two. Um, because mm. the way that the way that grid was set up with Chaz Davies making a pretty much a pig's ear of the start of race one and then only making it up to fourth by the end of that first race, 
It was all set up for Chaz Davis to do exactly what Tom Sykes did at Assen, and that's lead away from the front, get away whilst the rest of the competitors are fighting through the field and win race two at a canter. What happened was Jonathan Ray chased him down by half distance and then left him dead by four seconds. Um, yeah, that that might be a damning indictment and on the state of the state of play between Kawasaki and Ducati at the moment when you know Kawasaki just just basically Jonathan just does what he did basically all through last season, beat everybody up, get to the front of the field. Chaz tried, bless him. He tried. He really did to try and get one over on him, like 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 that. That for me said a lot. That that for me mm-hmm. told the way Chaz Davies was fighting against Jonathan Ray. That told me that Chaz was racing with the mindset of, I can't let this guy even get ahead of me, or I'm done. Yeah, exactly. Once he's passed, there's no way back. It was desperation. It was a matter of like, I'm going to either I'm going to either stand him up and I'm going to come down the inside and come back through, or this race is over. And unfortunately, Chaz could not stop the bleeding in this case because again, Chaz ended up playing second fiddle as Jonathan did muscle his way through in the end. So, um, and after that, like Jonathan put in, put in a lap that was six tenths of a second faster than Chaz, and the race was done. Effectively, it was it was as simple as that. It was over. Um, there was nothing Chaz could do. It was do. startling, wasn't it? Not not yeah. just the, the overtake from Ray, but the, the the sudden change of pace once Ray got past Davies. Yeah, um, exactly. It was, it, was, it was startling just how he just immediately like it was visible within a couple of corners. Ray was just pulling away visibly from the Ducati, mm-hmm. um, and that must have been crushing, just soul destroying for Chaz Davies. It's a circuit he has owned um, along with his manufacturer Ducati over the last two years. To see that happen to him at a place like Imola um, must have been crushing for Chaz Davies. But but for Jonathan Ray, Dre, um, he, as I mentioned, is now level with Carl Fogarty in terms of all-time victories. He could now surpass uh, Fogarty for the most victories, race victories in the history of the World Superbike Championship next time out at Donington Park. Um, just another, uh, it's 59, by the way, the number that Jonathan Ray is on. So he's chasing a 60th career win in World Superbikes next time out at Donington. I mean... We could have argued, and we can pretty much have argued for the last year or so, um, that Jonathan Ray is potentially the greatest world superbike rider of all time. Very, very soon. In fact, in seven days' time, he might have the numbers to go with it. Yeah, it's 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 probably going to... It's a matter of when, not if, at this point for Jonathan. And I think we're witnessing the greatest superbike rider that's ever walked this earth. Um, and I, I like this, this, we, 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 what we're getting now, basically, is confirmation. <laughs> basically, at this point, um, the numbers are going to back it up very soon as well, even though I think he passes the eye test. The things he does on a superbike compared to everybody else in the field is silly, quite frankly, half the time. It's 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 downright silly. Um, and he's, yeah, he's, he's doing a fantastic job. Um, and this is year four of him at, at Kawasaki, and he still looks every bit the dominant rider that he has and this is with the sport actively trying to clamp him and he still looks practically invincible right now on a superbike he's he's, he's doing an incredible job right now and again, i think he's the greatest and, and I, I really do and and i'm very glad that carl Fogarty himself was acknowledged on twitter and is basically you know gave him the salute and the blessing of sharing that wins record at least you know briefly albeit um the, the mutual respect there is very nice to see um but yeah i think we're witnessing the very greatest that we've ever seen on a superbike and i think what we're getting now is confirmation i think more than anything else Absolutely. He also set the absolute record now. Uh, I think it was his 17th double, uh, which is the record in World Superbikes of all time um, that Ray set at the weekend. Um, And with Tom Sykes taking a double podium, second in race one, and then third from third row in race two, 
uh, which is about as, as much as you can expect from Tom Sykes in race twos these days, mm. um, unless he has the grid advantage he had at Assen. Um, it kind of sets us up nicely for Donington, doesn't it? Um, in many respects, much like last year, it's Jonathan Ray, the form man, the best rider in this championship, one of the best riders on the planet at the moment, mm. up against the teammate on the same bike who is as good as anybody in the world yeah. around Donington Park. And with Kawasaki clearly the class of the field at the moment, set up for two thrilling races next weekend. We are. Um, so this is Tom Sykes land, but Jonathan, again, has had the measure of Sykes pretty much all season long by by any and all measure. So it's it, it's delicately poised going into Donington. Like, like again, Tom Sykes is going to have to be favourite at least for race one and probably to break Troy Corsa's all-time qualifying record as well, um, which is, let's be honest, a long time overdue. Like, it's like, like how long is, it, is this going to take before he get, finally gets it, for crying out loud? Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's 43 career polls Sykes is on, by the it, way. So that is 444 is the golden number um, that Sykes is going for next weekend. Um, we could well have... Um, both Kawasaki riders setting all-time records, one setting the all-time pole record and one setting the all-time win record next weekend. Indeed. Um, on the same weekend at Donington, which would be quite cool um, if they can both do that. Sykes did actually, as Greg Haynes mentioned on commentary, did set an all-time record of his own last weekend. 103 podiums now for Kawasaki, which is the most by a rider for a single manufacturer in world superbike history um, for Tom Sykes. Mind you, he's on 103. Johnny Ray's already up to 78 for Kawasaki oh, oh God. himself. <laughs> so, he well, so he might well give it a year or two. He might well take that record off his team anyway. 78 Kawasaki um, podiums in four years. Yeah. That is absolutely... Yeah, three and a half. That's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah, there probably haven't been much more than 78 races since then. Uh, that, uh, that Jonathan Ray has competed in. So, That's uh, yeah, outrageous. The are mind-boggling uh, that Jonathan Ray is achieving. Um, and yeah, the, the, it is set up brilliantly for a showdown between the two next weekend. We kind of, from from the neutral's point of view, and I appreciate I'm not one of them, um, we, we kind of need Sykes to be at full Donington form to, to give Johnny Ray a race next weekend. Please? Uh, My... Because because I, I don't think Chaz and Ducati are any any longer in a position to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not around Donington, where it's clear Kawasaki have the stronger package. Um, so, um, yeah, it's set up brilliantly for next weekend, the British round at Donington Park. And on next week's show, incidentally, uh, we'll be joined once again by the voice of the sport, Greg Haynes, to uh, hey. look at the season, how it's progressed, and indeed look ahead to the uh, showdown at Donington. Uh, next weekend so you've got to look to that to look forward to on episode 61 Greg Haynes rejoins us um, but yeah uh, let's look at Ducati and, and where they're at now I mean Chas Davis is now 47 points behind um, Jonathan Ray in the world championship um, and as we mentioned it wasn't just the fact that Jonathan Ray won race two and took a double but Chas Davis was on pole for that race and, and that, that's got to hurt him and in the end he was I don't think he'd have won it anyway, but perhaps any hope he had of getting away up the front was kind of scuppered by his um, one-time, new-time junior teammate, Michael Rubin Rinaldi. Whoops. Um, like that wasn't the plan, fellas. Um, to be fair, I think Chas kind of brought it upon himself by having two pretty poor starts in both races. Mm. Um, that, that didn't exactly help, no matter which way you slice it. Um, but yeah, I completely agree that, che- that you know that morality didn't help. Um, I think there'll be a, a, a sternly worded letter um, from Chaz um, um, to to Michael's like, D- don't do that again for the sake of the championship, sir. But you know, Michael, it was funny, wasn't it? Because as soon as Chaz got through, or as soon as Chaz like showed a wheel, 
Ronaldo put his arm out and waved him past. Whoops. Oh, it's Chaz. Oh. I was like, what, what, where, where was that three laps ago? Yeah, it's like, oh, Chaz, sorry. My bad. Come on through. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, we, I don't think he even realised like, what, what he was doing, really, or what he was comprehending yeah. with. Johnny was right on them by this point. Yeah, and right by that point, Jonathan was in the leading pack. Whoops. Um, so, yeah, Michael Rubinani wanted his hero moment to lead, to lead a Superbike Grand Prix, and he did. Um, turns out it probably did more harm than good to the Ruber team in the grand scheme of things because he just opened the door for Jonathan to come right through in the second half of that race. And, um, yeah, a shame for Chaz. Again, I think Chaz, if, if he'd gotten a decent start and probably led through turn two, he probably would have ha- at least given Jonathan a bit more to do to try and win that race and maybe, maybe make it a bit more interesting. But... Um, um, he didn't, and basically he, he he opened he opened up like um you know like like Moses parting the Red Sea to to let Jonathan have a clear path to take the lead, and after that it was over. Mm, it was, and uh, yeah, Chas Davis in the end taking a second uh, and a fourth away from him because he was beaten to the podium in race one by his teammate Marco Malandri. Um, and I don't know, Dre. In, in some respects, I think on pure pace that was perhaps the best Malandri's looked since his double at Phillip Island in race one. Mm. He, he he had the measure. Obviously, he was he had the benefit of making a better start than Chaz in race one. But once Chaz got into fourth place and started to chase him down, Malandri responded and had the pace to hold him off um, right. late in race one. Um, so positives for Marco to take from the weekend in that he looked much more competitive but unfortunately for him the weekend ended on a massive low and a massive downer because he was skittled out by Michael Vandermark oh what a shame that was like that was that was sloppy from from uh, MVDM on that one unfortunately um yeah like Milan just got collected on that one it was he was going well in that race and Michael got a bit too got a bit too racy Danny Aquaminerale and just takes him out unfortunately uh just an unfortunate racing incident. I know Michael apologised straight away. Obviously, mm. he completely, completely owned it. Just totally hands up and said, sorry, mate, just made a mistake. And obviously, Melania was just an unfortunate bystander. But, um, yeah, just a very unfortunate situation for both involved there. Melania was going well. A real shame his race was effectively ruined like that. Um, and, yeah, Michael just made a mistake and just he happened to be in the way. Real unfortunate for both guys. Yeah, the the first kind of mistake, really, that Van der Mark has made all year and the first yeah. DNF for either of those two riders. Uh, this season um chavi forest had another consistent weekend two top five finishes for him um so he continues to have a very very solid season he's still up in the top six um in the world championship um so ducati's continuing to litter the front of the field even though they now have kawasaki's ahead of them um as it goes forest was fourth in race two um the major beneficiary in the end of the malandri van der mark uh, collision although he was overtaken by sykes later on as he was trying to defend um, a podium spot um, Forrest was fifth in the end um, in the first race of the weekend um, as well. So he continues to do a very, very solid job at the moment um, this season. Yamaha, though, um, will have been expecting to be in there. And, of course, Vandermark was until his crash. Um, but I don't know how to look at this with Yamaha because historically uh, Imola has not been one of their stronger circuits, um, it has to be said. But surely they would have been expecting a little bit more than what they got. Alex Lowe's was sixth in race one. Um, and was hamstrung by basically missing most of Friday practice through a crash in fri- on Friday morning. And Vandermark was sixth in the first race of the weekend, mm. but a full 20 seconds behind the race winner. I mean, we might not know until, uh, until Donington Park whether this was just an aberration, but the progress we were expecting from Yamaha has kind of stuttered, hasn't it? It has. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we were thinking challenging for podiums and wins at the start of the season. Again, we've talked to before about they should have been the number one contenders 
to make a, a resurgence up the field given the rule changes, but it's just not come together for Yamaha. If, if anything, I think they've taken a bit of a step back so far this season, where I think the top four's been even more established with, and not to mention the addition of Javi Forez as a, as a fifth, you could say, top-tier runner with his results over the course of the season so far. I think with you as Javi Forez breakthrough race, I think it's coming. Um, but yeah, like Yamaha has kind of taken a step back in the grand scheme of things and fallen more into the midfield obscurity at the minute, and that's a shame for him because I thought this was going to be the breakthrough year, and it's, it turns out they're still, I think, half a step behind where they really need to be at the moment. Yeah. Mm, they are. It's looking... Yeah, it's looking not as exciting and not as impressive as we perhaps thought Yamaha would be at this stage. The next one will be interesting because it's Donington Park and it's Alex Lowe's home round. And of course, he got a podium from near enough the back of the grid there last year. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how competitive or otherwise Yamaha are there. Um, but so far this season, they're perhaps flattering to deceive a little bit um, mm. over at Yamaha. Uh, what about Andy Augusta, though, who got a fifth position once again for Jordi Torres? Now, he was sixth in race two at Assen. Um, which was a notable result. He beat Marco Melandri on the Aruba Ducati to do it. Um, this time, fifth position in race two of the weekend, beating Alex Lowe's and Rinaldi, who led early on to the flag, um, and as well beating all of the Aprilias, beating Baz on the BM. Um, given where they're at, and given that they lost Leon Camille the last season, this is about as high we can realistically expect an MV to be. So for Torres to get that bike up into fifth, um, and only be 15 seconds off the winner at the end, that's a result that deserves praising. Yeah, it's a magnificent result for him. Um, yeah, again, Jordi Torres has always been quality. Again, a, a former race winner in the class, a guy that, you know, has has gotten good performances out of, out of decent machinery. I don't think he ever should have lost his, 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 his really good ride. He had it a pretty a couple of years ago. He's been a great rider for him ever since. He did good things on the BMW. Should have really had a podium at Misano last year as well before his bike conked out electronically. That was a real shame. He was running second when that happened in that race. So, again, Jordi Torres has shown quality. Um, he just never really had the machinery to do it. And the one time he did in, in World Superbikes, was he had Leon Haslam as a teammate, who is as good as anybody on a Superbike on you know on, on his day. So, it, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's proven to be quality. And, yeah, this was another brilliant result for him. And, again, like MV probably are even further back from where they are right now. And, again, they don't have a class rider like Leon Camier there as well. Camier knew that team very well. He knew the bike exceptionally well and he was right up there um on numerous occasions so yeah like as you say like like i don't i didn't expect torres to be going in there on the same sort of level um as camia but he's riding very very well and that was an excellent performance for him yeah it's worth pointing out as well with torres that that result he was 14th in the first race of the weekend mm. um so it's not like he had the benefit of um reverse grids to move him up the order um, at the end of it as well, Jordi Torres started 11th on the grid um, for race two. So it's not like he had the benefit of a front row to um, to artificially push him up the order. So he had to come from 11th on the grid, whereas Davies, Forres and Vanderbilt were on the front row. Rinaldi, who he beat the flag, was fourth on the grid. He beat the likes of Savadori and Haslam, who were on the second row of the grid. So that, that's the more you look at it, the better a result that looks for Jordi Torres mm. um, last weekend. So, so well done to him and well done to MB Augusta. Um, who took fifth position, their best result of the season. Um, we have to mention Honda, though, unfortunately, whose dreadful luck continues. They, of course, lost uh, Leon Camier to injury um, back in Thailand. They then lost Jake Gagne to injury um, at Assen. Both riders were back last weekend. Camier returned, but then couldn't continue beyond free practice two because of those injuries. He still wasn't fully fit. Um, so he gave way to Jason R. Halloran, um, who... 
uh, unfortunately high-sided himself in that first race to be on the and suffered what appeared to be a broken ankle um, at the time. Now, thankfully, the injuries don't appear to be as bad as they appeared at the time. We thought he'd suffered a compound fracture, which might have kept him out for a long time. As it is, it doesn't look that bad, and hopefully he'll be back for the next BSB round, um, which takes place at Snetterton at the beginning of next month. Um, but, I mean, horrid luck for O'Halloran Dre, but we, we shouldn't forget how good he went prior to that crash, because mm. on Saturday, um, Jason O'Halloran, um, when we look at how, he, how qualifying went, he only took part in free practice three uh, on Friday, and then the very short FP4 session, which is 20 minutes on Saturday morning, he then goes into Super Bowl with next to no preparation, qualifies in that session in eighth, which puts him 18th on the grid. He out-qualified his teammate, Jake Gagne, with next to no preparation. Whatever happened afterwards, O'Halloran did himself the power of good. In terms of his reputation, at least, he did himself the power of good at Imola. Yeah, absolutely. He was incredibly fast. He did, he did, he did a great, great job out all weekend long. Again, very limited run. Only one practice session, but just got faster and faster the more time he spent on the bike. And that's that's what you do in a, in, with, a, with a learning experience. And um, he was fantastic. Again, the fact he's out-qualified Jake Gagne, who's no slouch by any stretch. Uh, you know, he's... Halloran's done a brilliant job there. He's, he's, he can he can he can do he, he can say he's, he's done he's done himself proud with his performance there um, all weekend long. I mean, a real shame he had, he had such a nasty high side um, in, in in race one and the the bike landing on top of his ankle and effectively breaking it. Um, unfortunately, again, wish wish Jason a speedy one. I um, hope he's back for Snetterton. But again, he did a brilliant job before that before the weekend was over there and yeah, he did himself real well on Saturday. Um, real shame how about how his weekend ended. Yeah. Yeah, he might have. Uh, he might have just killed off the career of his teammate Jake Gagne while doing it. Because mm -hmm. uh, um, I don't think uh, Gagne is going to have much time left in that team if that's anything to go by. Given that he got out qualified by a standing teammate with no prep, so uh, yeah, Gagne may well be on borrowed time at that team. But we shall see. Uh, here's how the race is finished. Then race one went to Ray from Sykes, first or well, second Kawasaki one two in a row. Uh, and their first, I think, uh, for, uh, their first they've ever achieved at Imola. Um, Marco Melandri third, ahead of Chas Davies and Xavi Forrest. So a Ducati 3 4 5. Uh, Vandermark sixth on the uh, Yamaha, ahead of Rinaldi and Savadori. Leon Haslam, who was wildcarding on the pornographic Elf uh, Pacetti Kawasaki, oh. um, in ninth position. Uh, ahead of Alex Lowe's in tenth. Top rack on the second of the Pacetti Kawasaki's in eleventh. Ahead of Eugene Laverty, back from injury twelfth. Morris Baz thirteenth. Torres fourteenth. And Leandro Mercado, 15th on the Oralac Kawasaki. Uh, race 2 went to Ray once again. Um, from 9th on the grid up to win the race. Chas Davis, 2nd. Um, so, um, not really the result he was hoping for from the pole. Tom Sykes, 3rd. Xavi Forres in 4th, ahead of Torres and Lowe's. Rinaldi, 7th again. Uh, from Rascatioglu, Laverty and Mercado. Loris Baz was 11th on the BM. Ahead of Roman Ramos, Yoni Hernandez. PJ Jacobson, who was the top Honda in race 2 in 14th ahead of Andre Jezek, 15th. Leon Haslam went off on the final lap and fell to 16th position uh, in the end. Championship standings then um, after uh, five rounds now, so we're 10 races in. Uh, Jonathan Ray leads it on 209 points, 47 clear of Chas Davies in second. Tom Sykes is up to third now on 137. Uh, Marco Melandri fourth on 131. Forrest fifth on 124. Vandermark has dropped to sixth after his crash in race two. He's on 113 points. Alex Lowe's teammate is seventh on 92. Rasgatioglu is eighth on 58. Torres is up to ninth on 52. And Loris Baz completes the top 10 for BMW on 52 points. Next round of the Superbike, Supersport and Supersport 300 championships are next weekend at Donington Park. There's one more class to bring you, though, because it was the Stockdowns race that wasn't actually televised last weekend. Eurosport showed it um, on uh, Sunday afternoon. And hey, Dre! 
A Ferrari won last weekend. Huh. I, 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 I see what you did there. I, I, I see what you did there. Um, dude. Matteo Ferrari, more to the point. Um, unfortunately, it was, unfortunately, it wasn't the Ferrari Dre was hoping for. No. Um, elsewhere in Barcelona. Matteo Ferrari, though, the wild card on the Barney Ducati, um, taking the victory in the Stock 1000 class from Roberto Tamburini. Uh, Ferrari taking the win on the final lap uh, from his compatriot, uh, Tamburini. Max Sheep, the pole man, the Chilean on the Aprilia. Um, that wasn't a deliberate rhyme. That's he is actually a Chilean. Uh, first ever Chilean riders to take a pole position in a superbike classed race. Um, he finished third in the end ahead of Federico Sandi. Marcus Reiterberger, who won the first two races by a country mile, could only manage fifth ahead of Luca Vitali in sixth position. Florian Marino seventh. Uh, Mantovani eighth. Um, Del Bianco ninth. Um, and in the end, Reiterberger holds on to the championship lead despite a pretty underwhelming uh, performance in round three of the season. Here's how it looks uh, with three rounds gone. Reiterberger on 61 points, just a point ahead now of Tamburini on the BMW second. Uh, Max Sheep is third on 45. Federico Sandi fourth on 42, ahead of Marino fifth on 31. Luca Vitali sixth on 29. Matteo Ferrari, who's not going to race again because he was wild carding. Um, he's seventh in the points at the moment on 25, ahead of Gabriel Ruiu. Uh, ninth is Luca Salvadori and tenth is Alessandro Del Bianco. Uh, on 15 points. As I mentioned, next round of all these classes is just a week from now, uh, the British round at Donington. then before we go we have some news to bring you uh, and this news leads us quite nicely into what's coming up this weekend and the french grand prix at le mans um because there have been a uh, three rider contracts to be signed um in the run-up to this weekend two-year contracts for the following alicia spargaro alex rins and andrea dovizioso all staying with their current manufacturers now i'm sure you're all listening and you can work out which of those three is the most significant mm. of the three um, but we'll come to that in a moment. First of all, Alasia Spargo is staying at Aprilia Dre for two more years. Um, now, I don't imagine much of this is based on what he's seen on that bike so far this year. Right. Um, but I don't know. I, I guess from Alasia Spargo's point of view, given what's out there, he's probably not going to do a whole lot better than Aprilia, is he? No. Um, a, a pretty, like, that's the thing, like... <sighs> Elish has proven himself to be a, a very competent development rider. I'm not sure he's ever shown enough ability to spearhead an elite team on his own. Um, yeah. So you might, so you might as well in his yeah. in his case just go all in with the Prilia and try and make that bike your own. Yeah, I, I, I was told by people in the know like David Emmett that basically he wanted to stay, the team wanted him to stay, it was apparently the easiest contract re-signing in history. Um, so, so you know, they got it out of the way because, oh, you know, they, you know, contract re-signing, lunch, sweet, sorted. Um, so, yeah, that was apparently it was a very quick process to get that ironed out, basically. Um, but, again, you can't blame him, really. The, the, like, both parties wanted the other to stick around than they have. Like, apparently, Alicia wants the bike to be a bit more reliable and that's understandable but he's willing to stick it out and see what a happens bit. well yeah it would, it would certainly help I'm not, I'm not denying that for a second yeah. um but yeah it would certainly help um but, but yeah, uh a lot more reliable yeah. more to the point but uh but yeah I, I, like i say i don't think uh with the best one in the world either Alicia, i don't think Alicia Spargo was likely to be able to do any better than aprilia given what's out there but equally uh, with all due respect to Alicia, um twitter rants notwithstanding mm. Um, I don't think Aprilia are likely to find a stronger rider out there than Aleish. 
Um, there are maybe one or two out there, but I think realistically, with the budget that team has and um, the bike that they they've got at the moment, I don't think they're likely to attract a top tier rider to their team. So Alesh is probably the best um, that they've got out there, and he's pretty. He's already made it clear that on on the right weekend with the with the following wind and the bike suiting him. Um, he can drag that bike into places it's not meant to exactly. be. Exactly. Um, so he's a good rider to have within your team, especially when you're trying to develop mm -hmm. a bike, uh, even if Alesh doesn't necessarily like that tag. Um, so uh, a good move for both team and rider um, in that one. Next up, Alex Rins, um, who uh, has signed on for another two years at Suzuki. Um, even if you understand and accept that he's had two poor rounds, or arguably three poor rounds with uh, with crashes. He's certainly been quick in these weekends. He's just not converted it on the Sunday into points. Um, but there's no question that he's shown enough to suggest that he is Suzuki's future. Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd think of that resigning. And it's crazy because Alex Rins has not had a very good season so far. I mean, on, on purely by results, three DNFs in the first four rounds through crashes. But... Um, it's clear that the pace that, they, that he has shown in those DNFs has proven that he is a, he you know he is a top six level guy. Something There's there. absolutely something there. If he, if he can just strap his head on and just work his way out about where the limit of that bike is, I think as soon as he figures that out, he's going to fly. I, I, I think so. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much about Alex Rins in the long term. I think I think he's got more than enough um, ability and, and and the proof of concept is certainly there with Rins um, so far. Um, you know, this season. So, yeah, absolute no-brainer. Still only 22 years old. Why the hell would you not tie him down for another two years, given the potential he's shown? It's the other seat that's caused the controversy at Suzuki, and probably now the mm. biggest domino to potentially fall in silly season now will be that one. Um, but I think Rins was always going to be a bit of a no-brainer. Mm, because in many ways, the second seat at Suzuki is kind of linked to uh, the second seat at this team, Ducati, because... Um, one of the most protracted contract negotiations of this silly season has finally now been concluded. Andrea De Vizioso uh, is staying at Ducati for the next two years. Um, and uh, we spoke about this quite a bit, didn't we, in this impromptu doorstepping that I um, that I triggered on Monday. Um, we talked a bit about Dobby, didn't we? And, and he's understandably tried very hard to sell his stock whilst it's high and tried to mm. negotiate um, the best contract for himself. And I think we totally endorse him doing that. We would have all done the same because his stock has never been higher and perhaps never will be higher than it is at this precise moment um, because he carried that team on his back last year. Um, and, and really, I think in the end, I mean, Dovi could possibly have commanded and achieved a better ride than Ducati because there is a seat at Honda still available and Honda clearly liked Dovi. Mm. Uh, but in the end, I think Dovi kind of pushed his luck with Ducati because he knew full well Ducati needed Dovi in many ways more than Dovi needed them and I think yeah. Ducati in the end done the right thing by paying him what he wants exactly I mean I said, I said I think I think Dovi had all the leverage going into this one like realistically speaking um like Dovi like he could have commanded just about any seat he wanted he's like again the last two years he's done incredible work with Ducati he's spearheaded the team he's brought them into play as a title contender Dovi very nearly winning the championship last year um, his stock is on the rise. He's also 32 later this year. This is probably going to be his last major contract in MotoGP where he's going to command top dollar. Um, and especially given they'd blown all that money on Lorenzo, I think that had given 
that I think that would give. I was about, a, I was about yeah, to say yeah. they kind of painted themselves into a corner, didn't they? Yeah, by paying the Reds all that money. They, 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 they've had to now say, you know what, Dovi really is the leader of this team. They're like the, he's proven that he is the guy that is going to spearhead Ducati towards a title threat. So they've got to pay him. You like, you, like you have to pay him whatever he wants because the the risk of losing him, I think, is far greater than any financial burden you're going to be when it comes to paying Dovi whatever the hell he wants. His camp knew that. His agent knew that. So why the hell wouldn't you go into that with that way of thinking? Um, so yeah, like again, I think all parties will inevitably be happy at this because Dovi is still the I think the only man that can give. Marquez any sort of fight over a, over an 18-19 race season and Dovi gets to you know play out you know eight years of the team he's going to be a Ducati legend in all circles but uh, what he's achieved with the team to date with you know seven victories of them right now and probably going to be more by the time it's all said and done so yeah like it's a no-brainer for Ducati you absolutely tie that man down because you know the, the worst threat is if it doesn't he goes to Honda and then you've got the best two riders on the planet for Repsol Honda that's the last thing anybody wants, quite frankly. And who are Ducati going to get that's anywhere near as good? No one. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah, no so, one. So that, and therein lies the problem uh, for Ducati. Um, what happens with the second seat, though, now is, is very, very interesting. David Edatolozzi was interviewed um, by James Toesland um, on uh, BT Sport this afternoon during free practice too, where uh, we didn't give much away, um, but he did kind of intimate that their priority was to try and retain Lorenzo. Um, on the second bike but of course there's no way Lorenzo is going to be able to stay on and command the same salary he's on at the moment um, the only way he's going to stay with that team is via a pay cut mm. um, but I mean, it's a two part question really A if you're Ducati what do you do um, but also what do you do if you're Lorenzo because if there's a seat at, at Suzuki it's been offered your way do you perhaps take the plunge and go to Suzuki knowing that that bike suits you better than the Ducati ever will well, what's the alternative here? Suzuki will probably be the only thing that's still going to give him decent money as well. So he's like, I think Lorenzo's too good to be commanding top dollar from satellite teams. He probably can't afford someone like Jorge Lorenzo. So Suzuki might be the only option here. And Ducati, I think, will be keen to keep Lorenzo because he's still a marketer's wet dream. He's still one of the, you know, two or three uh, probably biggest names in the series. So If you were running Ducati, would you be keen to keep him? I'm not sure Jack Miller or did again yeah. again considering what's out there to replace him. I don't know, and I I'm not sure whether Danilo Petrucci or Jack Miller, who are probably the number two guys in line here, I'm not sure they're worth the gamble at this point. Like I'm not sure if that's an improvement on what Lorenzo brings. I like like I think Lorenzo is better than what his season performances have brought along so far. I mean towards the end of last season he was competitive, he was challenging for podiums and he very nearly won at Misano and Sepang. Let's not forget that. Like Lorenzo, if anything, got over a lot of his his wet weather problems as well, which is a you know, a little feather in the cap for Lorenzo going forward is that he seems to have gotten over a lot of his rain issues. Um, so I'm not sure is the, is the, is the short answer to three on that one. If I'm Ducati, if you can get someone like Danilo who knows the bike and is on the GP18 right now and is, is you know, providing decent results and he can probably save 10 to you know 10 million a year by bringing him in, I'd probably bring in Petrucci instead of and just just let Lorenzo go and you know let him go to Suzuki or whatever, but um, because yeah. it, because in this instance it's Ducati with the leverage, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Um, when they're negotiating with Lorenzo, because Ducati can just say to Jorge, 
Hey, we've got other options here. We can we can easily we can we can keep Petrucci on because they have an option in which I think they have to take up before Mugello, Am I right? Mm, um, absolutely. If, they, if they're going to keep Danilo, um, so they'd have to make their decision on Petrucci by then, and obviously that means they would therefore have to make their decision on Lorenzo by then. Um, but equally, they could they've got Miller signed up to a Ducati contract, so they could easily just fast track Miller onto the Petrucci bike. They could, very unlikely, but in theory, they could do the same with Banyaya, but I don't think they're going to put him on a factory bike immediately. They're going to give him a year at Pramac first. Absolutely. Um, but they could they could turn to Jorge Lorenzo and say, well, we've got other options here. So if you want in, if you're still fully committed to this project, you want to stay with this team, you're going to have to take a pay cut, sunshine. Um, and and, and mm. I'm not so sure whether Jorge Lorenzo's ego would allow a pay I don't cut. think it is. Like... No, and I th- but I think wherever he goes, he's going to have to take one. Uh, there's no way that Suzuki going to pay him those big bucks. No way. The only team that can pay him that money are Ducati. Um, uh, and it's pretty clear that they're not going to do that anymore. So Jorge is in a bit of, bit of a difficult spot right now. Um, and th- there are no immediate signs of his performances um, you know, picking up to the point where he'll justify that salary. Um, so, yeah, he's in a very, very tricky spot. If I'm Ducati, if you can convince Jorge Lorenzo to sign on for much less money keep him sure because there's, there's a five-time world champion there and um i would much rather keep him on knowing that there's a great rider in there and it's just up to us and him to unlock it rather than taking a gamble on a rider that we don't know mm-hmm. is necessarily going to be um a front-running contender um on that bike because we've seen in the past how hard that ducati can be to learn uh, for a rider jumping on it um yeah, i mean we're still hearing 10 years on that bike doesn't turn as much as it should yeah um, so in many ways that explains some of Hawkeye's problems so it, it's an interesting conundrum it's probably going to become clear over the next two to four weeks with uh, with Mugello right around the corner following Le Mans um, so um, with that of course being Ducati's own round and with Petrucci's option expiring there we might well tell you in a couple of shows time where these domino pieces are going to fall but once uh, the Ducati second rider or the Suzuki second rider is sorted out that may well then see the dominoes fall elsewhere uh, in this silly season story. Um, as far as this weekend goes, though, Dre, and the MotoGP race that we've got, um, I think in many ways, the shit show in Argentina notwithstanding, this could be set up to be the best race we've had so far this season. Certainly the most open race. I'd say so. Um, because because Mark Marquez looked good this afternoon on race rubber, but it's still Le Mans, and it's still a circuit that doesn't particularly suit the Honda, nor does it suit Marquez. Um, Ducati looked good. Uh, and Dovi set the fastest ever motorcycle lap of Le Mans this afternoon mm-hmm. uh, in free practice. And it's pretty clear from free practice so far that the Yamahas, as we kind of expected, are back at a circuit that suits their bike and suits the M1. Um, so in theory, there are as many as seven riders, if you include Joan Zarco, on three different makes of bike who could all legitimately go into this weekend thinking, I can win this one. Absolutely. I think, there's a, I think there could be five or six runners for the win. Um, depending on context, I mean, Dovi did a 31.9 on a brand new soft rear tyre, while Marquez did a 32.1 at the end of the session on a hard rear that had done nine laps of running. Um, yeah, Marquez is for real around here, uh, again. Um, which, again, is a terrifying thought for everybody going in. I mean, I saw the, I read the press conference comments on Thursday. They're running scared of this Honda at the moment. Like, they are, like, everybody is, is, is posing 
exposing that the Honda is a threat now pretty much everywhere. Um, and yeah, Marquez was just doing his thing, just backing, just backing the truck up, having a couple of near misses, finding the range, and he's looking very strong at the moment, and that's on race rubber, so that's a good indicator of what he's going to be doing in the race, um, which is a, a, a tricky sign for a lot of guys involved. But as you as you mentioned, the Ducati is stronger than I thought around here. Dovi is looking very fast indeed. Um, and as I mentioned, the Yamahas, especially Valentino, very quietly doing the business at the moment. And I think they'll definitely be ones to look out for, especially in race trim on the Sunday. So this could be a case of maybe a leading group of five or six. Um, they are all looking very strong at the moment. I'm very eagerly looking forward to what's happening. Yeah, you just know Valentino and Maverick are going to be there on Sunday, don't you? You just know mm. um, they're going to be up there. So uh, so we shall see. It's going to be a fascinating um, race weekend um, to watch. Moto2, of course, are in action this weekend. Um, Francesco Bagnaia quickest today, just ahead of Joan Mia, who was up in second um, in pre-practice this afternoon. So he's looking quick. Uh, Moto3 wide open. Don't forget Aaron Canet coming from the back of the grid in Moto3 this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be well worth watching. Um, also the CEV the Moto3 Junior World Championship are also supporting this weekend um, at Le Mans and their race um, is live on YouTube Um, so uh, that'll be well worth watching on Saturday as well Uh, we'll review all of this next week on episode 61 uh, of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 before we go though we want to send our best wishes to Shaky Byrne the British Superbike Mm. champion who uh, injured himself uh, suffered back and neck injuries in an accident at Statterton this week uh, in the official British Superbike test. Um, no word yet on the, um, the severity of the injuries or how long he's going to be out. We hope he's going to be back in time uh, for Snetterton, um in the next round of the championship next month. Uh, PBM Ducati have confirmed that he will make a full recovery. Um, so uh, it's just a case of whether he's back for the next round of the championship. But we do wish Shaky Byrne all the very, very best. Um, as I mentioned, next week, episode 61 of Bike Live will review the French Grand Prix at Le Mans across MotoGP, Moto2, and Moto3. As well as that, um, episode 140 of Motorsport 101, a, uh, a number you heard several times if you've watched the Premier League darts and saw Michael Van Gerwen curb stomping uh, Michael Smith Good and Rob Cross Lord. Um, <laughs> at the O2 um, earlier this week. Um, so, uh, yeah, RJ will be practicing his darts calls for this week's edition of the show. Um, yeah. But uh, but in terms of what you've actually got to look forward to this week, Dre, episode 140 of Monospot 101, uh, practice and by the time you speak on the podcast, qualifying uh, for the Indy 500 will be well underway. In fact, it will be complete, mm-hmm. as well as the Berlin Ypres. Yes, indeed. Episode 140 coming up next week. Uh, again, as mentioned, probably headlining will be the Indy 500 qualifying session. Bump day tomorrow as we're recording this on May 18th. Uh, 35 cars, only 33 starting spots on the grid for Sunday. So, or for next Sunday, I should say. So, yeah, two guys have got to go. And we've got to find out who who, which, who will be bumped out. Um, and we will find out tomorrow as we record this. And obviously the Fast 9 on Sunday to determine who gets the, the very prestigious nine points in the honour of leading off the 102nd running of the Indy 500 on day of Classics 3 next Sunday. And of course, the Berlin E Prix as well, popular around the Formula E calendar. Um, John Eric Verne going for four wins and on the bounce. Uh, a big, big weekend for the championship where that's concerned. I think Verne could put one hand on the title with a good showing here in Berlin. And the totally non controversial case of Formula E starting their brand new era of Gen 2 cars in Saudi Arabia. 
that's bound to, that's bound to go over well. Shout, um, out, shout out to Ryan Keith for calling it the greatest April. Oh. Um, all you WWE fans will get that one. Oh dear lord, um, that's going to go over well. Episode 140 next week on Motorsport 101. <laughs> yeah, keep an eye out for that um, around uh, next weekend. Uh, places you can find us between now and then. Um, unless you happen to rock up at Dre's Bookies, the places you can find is our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, on Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Um, our YouTube channel, which is where you will be able to go to find Day of Classics 3 on Sunday, um, May the 27th. Um, Day of Classics 3, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Make sure you're subscribed on there because there's plenty more content besides to uh, keep you uh, keep you going on there before Day of Classics 3 uh, comes along next weekend. Uh, our website is motorsport101.net. Keep an eye on that for some content very, very soon from the Belly Nipri, from the brilliant Hazel Southwell over there yes! as well. Um, uh, our Patreon page as well, if you want to back us financially and any of early access to both our weekly shows, it's patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. A reminder, if you back us at the $5 level, you get the podcast earlier than everyone else. If you back us at the $10 level, you get access to our Discord server and you can listen in live, as Henry Chapman has been doing this very evening. Um, as I mentioned, join us next week for episode 140 of Motorsport 101 and episode 61 of Bike Live as we look back on the French GP at Le Mans. This week's edition, though, has looked back on the, the Imola round of the World Superbikes uh, where we've all joined the world, in particular Turkey, in saying thank you, Keenan. From myself and Dre, we'll see you next week. 